Hello, and welcome to the World Wanderers Podcast, a proud part of the Wander Barn Podcast Network. I'm Ryan. I'm Amanda. And we're your hosts. We're a traveling couple and digital nomads taking you on our adventures as we explore locations, destinations, and careers. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the World Wanderers Podcast. We are very excited that you're here with us today. Today on the podcast, we have a super awesome interview for you. We are chatting with long-term listener of the show and friend of ours, Andy Corbley. Andy lives with his wife in Italy. He's an American traveler, remote reporter, staff writer at Good News Network, and founder of World at Large News, an independent news outlet covering war and foreign policy, conservation news, health, nutrition, and physiology and physiology, space and science and travel. So lots of good stuff happening there. And we're super stoked to just dive in with Andy about choosing to move to Italy, living there, falling in love, getting married, what it's been like over the pandemic, you know, building a business, all that good stuff. So welcome to the show today, Andy. We're super excited to have you here with us. Thanks for having me. It's finally, you know, it's great to finally meet you both in person or as as person as it can be in our lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and so, Andy, can you kind of just fill us in a little bit with like your background? I think for one thing, I, I know just kind of you were traveling and then how do you end up settling down in Italy? So um, when I was when I was young, my mom wanted me to go backpacking across Europe with my sister because she had um, she didn't my mom didn't feel she was adequately protected. And so she bought me a plane ticket as long as I would pay for the rest. And so after traveling across Europe for three months, I came home with this like great emptiness and over time realized that, you know, it was kind of like I had the travel bug as we call, you know, as people call it. Um, but specifically that I wanted a kind of travel that was like more uh, than just tourism. And so ever since then, that was in 2017 and I would progressively take trips to try and, you know, dig deep and have a real kind of political, cultural travel program to go to places like Nicaragua, Colombia, China. And then I was planning a trip, I think, again, to or to Southeast Asia, maybe. And then I realized, like, why don't I, why don't I, why do I never think of Africa? So I was like, no, no screw it. I'm going to, I'm going to do it. So I planned to go to Africa and I went for like three good geocultural areas. So the South, the West Coast and the Arab So I decided for Namibia, Ghana, and Morocco. And so the first stop I made was in November, uh, late November of 2018, when I went to Namibia, which is on the Atlantic coast. I know some Americans that I know didn't know where it was. I'm just going to (laughs) briefly include the geography. It's on the southwest coast of Africa, above South Africa. And when I was there, I went to this a very cool town. Namibia, of course, all of, almost all of Africa was colonized. Namibia was a German colony. And I was in this cool Western town called Swakopmund. And there I stayed at a, at a hostel and found a very, very beautiful woman who, for the first time in my life, was the person who invited me out to dinner, which had never happened before. And that was the woman who would become my wife, Mara, and uh, we fell in love over a few short days. And of course, oh, and the other detail is that that was the first time that I I had ever left the United States on a trip with the ability to work from my computer, which had been my dream for several years before that. 
And so it really was like the start of the rest of my life in an ironic way. Um, totally, the ironic part being totally not in the way that I envisioned it, which was falling in love with this woman. And after going to Ghana, spending three weeks in Ghana, I had changed my plane ticket from Morocco to Milan, about 40 kilometers from which she lives. And then I arrived, we started dating. We found, you know, I, we kind of moved in together, pseudo style into an Airbnb that she had rented for me. And then the pandemic arrived and we were stuck. And uh, my visitor, you know, my brief tourist visa was expiring. We got a 30 day or like a, a 60 day extension. And then that was going to expire. And at the time we asked the owner of the Airbnb, what our chances or our options were. And he essentially said, well, you guys are just going to have to get married. And we were like, all right. <laughs> that was the end of that. Awesome. Yeah. What an adventure. Um, so how long were you in Italy before, like, especially like Northern Italy? I know it was kind of like in February when things started getting weird over there. How long had you been there kind of like able to go do stuff, live like a normal ish life before that all kind of set in. Yeah, not long because I arrived in the 20th of January um, of 2020. And yeah, so really just about 30 days. No, I was, uh, we were looking for something to do and we decided to go to Venice. I'd never been to Venezia. And um, we thought, oh, Feb- late February, who's going to be in Venezia? It's freezing. You know, there's nothing to do, but it's not flooding. So it seems like a good time to visit. Well, actually, it was Carnival. And so, you know, you couldn't move your right arm without hitting three people. And um, but, geez, we must have been, you know, that would have been like February 27th, 28th. So that must have been essentially the same period as that bus full of Chinese tourists that first brought uh, the virus to the country. So after that, it literally, you know, it really was essentially halfway through March because my wife works a lot. So we didn't have a lot of time to travel or do fun things anyway. She works, she's a lawyer, but she also races horses. So she's in the stable every morning from about uh, half past six to nine or half past six to like eight, half past eight. And then she goes to her law practice. So we have very little time to explore and so, yeah, essentially 20 days or 30 days after that, we were uh, told that we could not go more than 200 meters away from the door to our domicile. So, yeah, not very long. Wow, that's uh, crazy. And so you've been in Italy pretty much ever since the pandemic hit then? Aside for a brief period where I went home uh, kind of after the first wave, as it was kind of cooling down, it was October to attend my brother's wedding i've been here ever since yeah so i was just telling yeah about 28 months and for you what was that kind of transition like into i guess for your perspective andy when you came were you thinking i'm just gonna like set up and live here was it like oh i'll spend a few months here and then go somewhere else and then come back what was kind of the perspective and then how did that shift into you being like hey i you know i live here full time now I don't think it was ever, it was never something I looked into more than a month because I guess just as I myself am a person who is rather particular and very individualistic, not to say I'm not a good husband, I think I am, but you know, 
I have very, a very strong picture of the world and my place in it. And so in those or, you know, first six months, it wasn't, I was never kind of imagining like, I think even really, even after we got married, because we just, we just did a civil ceremony, you know, I, I signed my name and that was actually a bit funny because I had been there about six months. My Italian was pretty good. And I understood everything that the syndico, the official from the state, I understood everything he was saying during the marriage ceremony until, you know, it was all like article one, two, seven, one, two, eight, one, two, nine of the Italian civil code. But then the part where I was supposed to say yes, I just totally didn't catch. And so I'm like standing there smiling and he's like, you have to say yes now. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, but even after that, I don't think I ever imagined that, um, I think, you know, getting married in six months after meeting this girl and speaking different languages, she, she speaks English very, very well. So there was not often a communication problem. But then also with the pandemic, I don't think I ever bothered, even bothered to think more than a year in advance. So the aspect of like going home or thinking about my life in the wider world, that was never on my mind much during those days. We actually, you know, and on that point, we did do a lot of inter- Italy travel just because of, you know, it was easy. So I've probably, you know, we joke now that I've seen a lot more of Italy than most Italians have, especially in this area, because Lombardia is very famous for being a working, people work very, very hard here. It's the industrial heart of the country. So for example, my grandfather-in-law, you know, I've, I've seen far more of Italy than he has. Yeah. I feel like for us, that was kind of a bit of our experience being in Mexico for so much of this, where like such a great big country with so much stuff to do. Um, but you never really get to so many of these places, but just kind of having the context of like, oh, we're not going to leave because it's just such a headache to go across borders. Did you have that problem where the more you stayed there, the more you would meet people who would tell you about awesome stuff to do and see? Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Like we came to Mexico in 2017 with like a pretty significant bucket list, but we've done a lot now. And I think our bucket list is even bigger than it's stuck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause that was kind of, you know, you, especially once I started to be able to speak Italian, cause few, not a lot of people here speak English and the people who do don't usually speak it unless you're a friend. Um, and even then after all hope of speaking Italian has, has ended, but yeah, that once, but once I really could speak Italian, it, it became a question of, uh, you know, not a question, but it came, it, it came to be that I was constantly being in, in introduced to new places that you'd never hear about. And so, you know, I think on, on World at Large, there are some travel articles about places, you know, drop dead gorgeous places in Italy that you wouldn't hear about living in, you know, North America after 80 years of life. You know, there's just, just so much to do and see in a place like this. Yeah. I want to talk about World at Large in a bit. Um, but quickly on just like the learning the language part of that, did you know like any Italian at all prior to meeting your wife? And then what was the process like? How have you kind of, you know, worked on learning that language and, you know, kind of advancing at it over the past couple of years? So go- going back to go forward, um, I was taken out of school at a very young age by a very hippie mom. And so I didn't have much, uh, uh, I had no introduction to formal education or language tutoring. So there was a period when I was young where I thought I wanted to be an opera singer. 
And so I studied opera for a year and a half. <laughs> and uh, that required learning, you know, a significant understanding of the Italian language, not necessarily vocabularily, if that's if I can say that. But, you know, I had to know exactly how to pronounce a word when I saw it. I needed to understand the accent, um, things like that. So that certainly helped. And when I went to, you know, uh, to 2017, when I went to Nicaragua and Colombia, I had spent seven months with a Spanish tutor before then. So I had a, you know, a, a strong introduction in the Latin alphabet and, and Latin language structures. But I actually found it Italian pretty difficult to learn, which I don't think most people would tell you. Most people tell me I've learned it really quickly. I took about three lessons when I was here at an immigrant school, but it was closed down for COVID almost immediately. <laughs> so I, I really just did it exactly how everyone tells you you must learn a language, which is I learned essentially all the Italian that I know today, you know, at the dinner table. Just like having friends and family. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. And I, I mean, I think that's like the best way to learn personally. I think we've done so many different things learning Spanish. Like both of us took Spanish in high school and like, you know, we're from rural areas in Western Canada. So you can imagine that Spanish wasn't super, super quality and also just not very practical, right? Because you leave the classroom and you're never using it. And then you know, traveled, try to learn it some more, took some like formal schooling lessons on our travels. But I think it's just been like, you know, things like, okay, we had a baby in Mexico and our midwife doesn't speak any English. So it's like, you have to learn the words, right? Like you actually have a need for it versus just being in a classroom and being taught words and then never using them again. So I think that's awesome that you've been able to do that and create a life over there for yourself. Well, I also think on that point that um, I, I too, I was just, I was telling before the recording started that I just a few days ago passed my Italian driver's license theory exam, which you have to do in Italian. It's the dumbest thing because if you, you can do it in Italian, German, or French, because, you know, there are countries that speak French or Germany that border Italy. But if you're from Italy or if you're from Germany, Austria, or France, your license your driving license from there is honored by the people from Italy. So you don't have to get an Italian driver's license. Me as an American, I do have to get an Italian driver's license, but they don't have it in my language, you know, the test of my language. So it makes no sense. But, you, you know, I had to learn words for muffler, you know, uh, spark plug, ignition key, you know, all kinds of things that, that I was just so ready to go my whole life without ever bothering to learn. And then you're kind of forced into it. Or for example, I'm a reporter. And so a lot of people want to know my thoughts on a million topics, you know, so you, you realize if you want to say, if you really want to express yourself, you have to spend a day or not a day, but at least an hour, you know, just going on Google translate and looking up every word to do with economics, you know, like uh, mortgage backed securities, you know, interest rate, overnight interest rate, you know, you have to just, just write them all down somewhere and bring them with you in your, in your purse to, to the next dinner engagement. So you can practice, you pull out your little book, everybody laughs at you, and then you can fill in all the sentences with all the words you've learned. So, but yeah, I mean, the, the vast bulk of it, you can learn just from, from talking to people, I think. Yeah, for sure. I think spark plug is one that I do not know in Spanish and hopefully don't need to learn at any point. 
A lot of people <laughs> say the Italian language is very beautiful. There's a word, it essentially means like uh, slippery, and it's sdrucciolevole, which I'll never I remember thinking, what on earth when I saw it on the test? Yeah, no, I like it. That's amazing. And so just going kind of in a different direction with your story and whatnot, I, w- I want to back up to before you headed on that first trip, you said that you were able to make money while working. So what first inspired you to think like, hey, I'd love to go traveling and be able to make an income while while doing this? Well, I have to say it was you guys to a degree, a certain degree, because I had never heard the word digital nomad until I was, you know, stacking box or, you know, picking aircraft parts at the warehouse I worked for, you know, uh, dreaming of, of South America, listening to the World Wanderers podcast and just trying to thinking like, I can't believe there are people so smart as to imagine that they can just work from their computer and they don't have to wake up at 4.30 in the morning to drive in DC traffic to this stupid warehouse in order to make money. Um, so ever since then, uh, I realized, you know, cause I saved up like 10 grand and then I blew all of it on a two month travel period. And I said, okay, this is totally unsustainable. So journalism is kind of like the family business. I have two brother or two siblings. My mother started, uh, Google's, you know, so the, essentially it's number one on Google. So you could essentially say it's the internet's number one news outlet for exclusively positive news. And I'm a staff writer for them. Then my sister also worked for them for a period. My dad produces television documentaries for American public television. So journal, like kind of like writing and uh, telling factual stories is kind of like a bit, you know, the family business in a way. So I, I wanted a career as a writing, but also this, this has a huge part. A huge part of this has to do with like one podcast I listened to. November of 2016 from uh, Ari Shafir's Skeptic Tank, uh, episode 277 with Henry Rollins. And for listeners who don't know, Henry Rollins was the lead lead singer of Black Flag, which was like a punk rock band, hardcore punk rock band in the 80s. But he, after kind of exiting music, he turned into this like world traveler, writer. He published like 27 books. He's a photographer. He has two photo books. He's been to over 150 countries and he's written like political review, every kind of, he's, he's written about every angle of travel you could ever imagine. And his story, his travel stories, peel the paint off of your travel stories, you know, and he did like, he just spoke for two and a half hours. The host was great. He just let him speak. And this guy's like this crazy workaholic. He was one of the first Americans ever, uh, prescribed uh, Ritalin. So he, he's, he's like the picture of a Ritalin up child. Um, but he, he just talks really fast and drinks a lot of coffee and barely sleeps. Um, so I knew that like I, I wanted, he was the first person that radio program made me feel like I could, I could have real opinions and like talk about the world and do things like in a really you know, not just talk about hotels and restaurants and beautiful UNESCO World Heritage sites, but I could like really pull out really meaningful commentary out of you know places that I went. And so um, after the whole South America trip where I lost all my money, I um, I brief I stayed five months in China, like uh, speak, teaching English, which also you know kind of just ended in a 
not so because again it wasn't very sustainable because sure i could travel a lot in china but i was on like a one-year contract and i was bored of china in a way and i wanted to see other things um and then i got i just started building a career as a writer and i I just needed to write in any way possible because I knew if I could write, I could work from my computer. And if I could work from my computer, I could travel to faraway places and be like Henry, be like Henry Rollins. So I first got it. You know, there's a lot of jobs available for anyone who wants to start as a writer in content marketing. I mean, there's no end to the number of content marketers, probably because a lot of people stop being content marketers because it's really hard and demands an enormous amount of passion and drive and energy and then I got a brief job, you know, as a science reporter, which was really cool with this application that uh, fed people little bite-sized news articles about science, which I would be given by editors and then judged. And I made like $8 a story. And that was like the first real writing job I ever had. I made like $128 that year while working, selling gourmet cheese to white people as a way to pay the, most of the bills. Um, and then I got a job offer from an actual content marketing agency, which paid, you know, 900 before taxes every two weeks. And that was the first real writing job I had. And I, I must have written a million things, you know, must have wrote, excuse me, uh, a million things about, you know, how to make a blog and <laughs> build a website and attract leads and and all the things that you need to understand to run a content marketing platform. And then um, my mother, who, as I mentioned before, has this uh, very large news outlet, digital news outlet. She needed writers because some of hers had quit. And so I took over the job and, you know, started from there, but I, I knew that it's not, it's, I was always trying to find something more sustainable. And I had a feeling that maybe working for my mother, who's a very fiery personality, was not a sustainable. Turns out we work rather well together. and We have a lot of the same ideas. And I, and I really believe in the company. But I also started my own news outlet because I was interested in, in journalism um, at the time. This was in 2018. I became very interested in reporting and, and news and stuff. And I realized that Maybe we can talk about this a little more nearing the end of this particular story. But I realized that the, the, the world of journalism was experiencing a tremendous upheaval. And people who, you know, journalism, I think despite what a lot of people think, you know, you had rather Jennings and Brokaw on television in America for like 60 years. But journalism has always been extremely elitist in our country. And, you know... Ivy League schools crank out journalism, you know, journalists who go and, and work at either, you know, major media outlets like the New York Times or publish studies and think tanks. That's like mainstream, main, mainstream journalism in America is a lot like that. It's kind of like a very closed house. So, but, but with the advent of social media and especially podcasting, podcasting really changed it all because you could, you'd see that Joe Rogan, the Joe Rogan experience would get more downloads than all major television news you know television news programs had viewers and so i realized there was a, a a place in that world where somebody with 
interesting ideas or, or different takes on things. You know, also by 2018, I had grown up quite a lot and experienced a very, you know, America had become this extremely polarized world. And I felt that maybe new, fresh commentary that didn't subscribe to the same kind of journalistic hack path through life and where everyone has the same ideas and everybody uses the exact same words to to explain you know every important story they'll use the exact same adjectives that sort of thing like i thought there was a room in that for for a new perspective and so that's when i founded world at large about the same time as i started working for the good news network and the two have kind of gone in tandem when I arrived in Italy, I was still working for those two outlets as a way to pay the bills, what little there were, but I never envisioned them to be enough to sustain like a whole family. And that was something that changed over the years in Italy as I stayed here because uh, my wife is a bit older than me. She's ready for a different period in her life. And uh, so I just kind of I stepped it up. I pushed harder. I took on more responsibility. And, and now I'm doing podcasts, which is, I guess, the next step of this whole process after publishing, a, you know, over 2000 stories on World at Large and, uh, and Good News Network. So here I am now. We're, we're in our third, uh, third or fourth full year now. And um, we've experienced tremendous growth year upon year. I'm at the point where I'm kind of looking for ways to expand World at Large because the way in which I imagined it growing was kind of uh, hasn't really happened. So, which is, I, I imagined like there'd be a lot of people like me who needed to start a publishing, you know, ha have experience publishing news stories, but, you know, would never have a hope of getting on the LA times or something like that. Haven't really experienced that, but it's growing in other ways. So anyway, I can't even remember what your question was now, but that's, that's the whole professional story. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's, it's good to hear the whole, like the walkthrough on it. Um, what's the process been like? You kind of mentioned kind of becoming more serious about it, kind of focusing on the business side uh, of developing that. Like, what's that process been like? And kind of for anyone who's maybe interested in kind of starting a career independently writing, like what are your kind of suggestions from your experience or what are the best routes to start with that? I have a couple of key hints, which is one, if you start an Amazon affiliate program, don't tell your friends about it because if they find that too many of your friends are using your link, they'll shut you down. Um, but, uh, I think the best advice would be like, um, don't spend too much money in it because the whole journalism industry now is experiencing this problem, which is that nobody wants to pay for news anymore. So you're already coming into a career where the expectations for, um, the expectation to pay is, is down right. You know, zero. I mean, you have some exceptions. You have some journals that have subscriptions, you have like Substack, like you, you can read Glenn Greenwald whenever you want, as long as you give him $5 a month or something like that. But you're entering in, into an industry that has settled into this world where, you know, maybe not the finest viewpoints, especially in sports, for example, are, are free, but most news is, is going to be expected to be free. So you need to create uh, a vision right from the start of how to build an industry with no or you how to build a business in an industry where like um, the way to make money is still not clear to anybody. I guarantee you both that if journals like the New York Times 
and National Geographic. It's really a journal, but you know, it's a magazine. So that's yeah. So let's exclude that. So like the New York Times, CNN, these major media institutions in my country, at least, if they didn't receive enormous amounts of money from extremely politically connected individuals and firms, they would have a very challenging, much more challenging life. And you wouldn't be able to get $700 for uh, a featured article published in the New York Times. You know, like um, the journalism industry is propped up in a lot of ways by politically connected companies and individuals because they expect that the journals they help prop up will continue pursuing a viewpoint. We can say it like that, pursuing a viewpoint that they find uh, ideal uh, for the future of America. So you have to start from the very beginning, imagining uh, to do a lot of the hard work, like building uh, brand loyalty, the kind of things that are really difficult to do. Uh, brand loyalty, um, let's say, how do you call like organic traffic, repeat followers, repeat traffic, you know, you have to you have to understand ad, you know, ad uh, and SEO and, and things that are like, because you need, I make all my money just from clicks on ads and the occasional generous donation. I tried to do like a donation only strategy because I was young and naive and that didn't work. But uh, I make a couple hundred dollars a year from Google ads. And you really need to understand how to like keep an eye on, for example, what ads are appearing on your site. You know, like when I first started the ad program, I noticed that the, the ads coming up were all for like private jet rentals and money management firms and, and things that I was like, the, the average reader here must be like 65, you know, white from Manhattan zip codes. But uh, you have to understand a lot of things about how to operate in a, you know, in a cash strapped uh, situation because you're not driving sales in any meaningful capacity because everyone expects your product to be free. I think there are better ways. Like, for example, if if you want to be a writer, there's a, a hundred ways to make a living as a writer. You don't necessarily have to be a journalist, but you, you could add news elements into a blog. It's much more easy to make money with a blog because you can do things like sponsored content and, uh, gadget reviews or travel article, you know, travel clothing reviews or things like that, where you can make money through referral links and things like that. But if you put start putting a lot of that in your news outlet, you're going to get people questioning, you know, your integrity about it. So, so th that would be the advice I have. Nice. Yeah. I know it's definitely like a long road doing any type of, whether it's journalism or content creation or whatever it might be, but um, yeah, it's awesome hearing that background. And then for you, Andy, I know you started when you were doing a lot more travels and you mentioned traveling within Italy, but like, what does kind of like the future look like for both of you as a, a traveler and then for the types of stuff you want to cover? Well, I was so pleased with how my trip to Morocco in November went because I really accomplished everything that I had set out to do, which was an awful lot. I had set the bar very high because I don't know about you guys, but I think like sometimes it can be really difficult setting your expectations for a place. And then you get there 
I often feel sometimes like I have iron, you know, balls stuck around my ankles. Like I, sometimes I feel kind of trapped in certain ways. And, uh, but in Morocco, I really did kind of push myself to get out really far into the world, into the country and, um, kind of experience it in a, in a way that's, that's much more authentic. So that gave me a lot of confidence, I would say, um, planning future trips. At the moment, right now, I'd probably be talking to you guys from a country, uh, but let's see, January of this year, it turns out my wife had a great aunt. I didn't know she had existed at the time, but she had a house and she had decided to give it to my wife. And so I did decided not to plan any trips because usually I'd have a trip. What happened last year, for example, is, is I had a trip in April and a trip in November. And then we as a, a couple would have a trip in the summertime together because in Italy, every month, in the month of August, everybody goes on holiday. It's like everybody. So we went on this big trip around Italy to Spello and uh, Assisi and Marche, which are all beautiful places. And then in November, I went to Morocco. So usually there's like a, an, a spring and, a, and an autumn travel. And what I would like, so I didn't go anywhere this April because I wanted to make sure I had all the money available to, because this was an old house. And I know from growing up in an old house, how common it can be to wake up in the morning and find that some large part of it needs to be replaced. So, and that sure enough, yeah, we needed to replace the, the heating, the central heater. And uh, so I didn't go anywhere in April. In, in, in summertime for our family holiday, we were actually going with my brother-in-law to Malaysia. So that will be the first trip of the year. And I know you guys have been to Malaysia. And so any recommendations are appreciated, especially in Kuala Lumpur. Um, we're better at planning trips in the countryside, I would say, than in a big city. And then in November, I will hopefully have the joy of returning because her uncle is a Franciscan monk. And he has lived for the last 13 years in the Amazon with uh, tribes spreading the good word. And so he will visit. He, he visits here every, you know, every year, every other year sometimes. So when he comes, I will... Right now, the plan is to go back with him because you have to arrive in Manaus and then you have to go and find this boat captain and he will take you up the up river into the Amazon for four days on boat. And then you have to go kind of several hours on on foot to the tra- to the village where he lives. And I hope to stay with him for about a month in the Amazon. So that will be hopefully hopefully worth skipping the April trip. <laughs> you know, because that uh, is something that came up last, you know, last year. I, I remember he was very excited to hear that maybe I would visit. Certainly, nobody in his family has visited him since he went there. But he's a really cool dude. I'll be 29 this summer, and by next year, the by next year, I want to start writing a book about everything I've seen. And what I've done was I've ha- I've had this leather bound book, and I've written in it. Every night for every day, every day that I've been on the road and I've never looked at it. 
in six years. And so on the end of the seventh year, when I'm 30, I'm going to look at it and read everything I've ever written and then uh, write a book about that and try to self-publish. So that's, that's where the future is. Cool. That's awesome. Uh, your trips sound really amazing. And then I love that book idea. And it's so cool that you haven't like gone back and read that stuff. And you've got kind of this like deadline for doing that. I think that that's super cool. And so I'm kind of curious about you know the writing process and the topics that you choose and that type of thing. Obviously, you cover a lot of things outside of just travel. And if you're traveling, I'm sure there's lots of... you know rich content for you to write about. But when you're not traveling and you know, you're writing kind of every day or during the week and that type of thing, because you publish a lot of articles on world at world at large, where are you drawing inspiration from? Where are you finding, you know, the things you want to write about? How do you stay inspired with that? I'd love to hear all of that. Okay. Well that's a pretty big question. First of all, I'm I'm not really I'm not like a blogger. I'm a reporter. So if there's news, I'm going to cover it. Um, it's taken a while to build up a base of, you know, when I say sources, I don't mean like, you know, the, you know, some anonymous insider in the defense intelligence agency. I just mean like places where I know that I can go and find breaking news and, uh, and report on it. It depends. So let's take world at large because I'm the only writer for world at large at the moment. And so I I picked five categories knowing that there would be days where I wouldn't want to go to work or write anything. And so I picked the categories that I knew on those days I could still get, you know, excited to, to write about. Because certainly when I started World at Large, I was fired up about a lot of great many things, but, you know, times always change. And so for example, I, did, I didn't start with the space section, but I got really interested in space recently. And I know that even on days when I'm sick or not really feeling like working, I can look at all my sources and find some breaking news about space and report on it. So, I mean, most of it's news. Um, it's not really topics, but like sometimes within, I, I have to limit myself to topics only because my brain has a certain amount of space. Like for example... I know what happened in the war in Somalia, but I never really reported on Somalia just because I felt like I was, or Libya is a better example. I know what happened in the war in Libya. I didn't ever report on its aftermath because I kind of just felt like I needed to, I was already reporting on Iraq, on Syria, on the the relationship with the Chinese, the relationship between Russia and Ukraine, the the conflicts in the area, you know, like the conflicts of interest in the Asia Pacific, the coup attempt in Venezuela, like all of the foreign policy and war that I would report on. I just felt like if I continually shove my brain with the particulars of like every conflict, then it's going to make all, it's going to diminish the excellence of all content equally because I will just be spread too thin. So in in that sense, I do pick topics, which is like, I can only cover so many things. I started with an idea of covering certain climate change related topics, but I stopped all of that almost immediately because I felt like one of the huge, one of the things I really started at World at Large to combat was bad habits in the media. And one of the habits is like really quickly accepting enormous presuppositions about topics and then never 
elaborating on them or explaining them in, in, a, in, in detail. So for example, you know, think, think what you want to, what you like about climate change, but most journals will just simply write scientists agree that it's important to keep the world at less than 1.5 degrees C warming. And that'll be the entire paragraph that they'll include about a story on climate change. And I just couldn't, I felt like, well, I haven't read all the studies. I haven't read the thousands of studies. So it's like, if I haven't seen the evidence, I feel irresponsible reporting on it. If other people want to report on it, that's fine. But for me, I like to report only on what I can kind of verify to the best of my abilities. So for example, with the environment section, it's really just become news about animals and conservation, like species at risk and things like that. For travel, that's the kind of, that's the one that's hardest because I, I wanted to, the, the, the travel section is my retirement is what I sometimes joke. It's like when I have interns doing all the other news categories, I'll just be writing travel stories. And uh, those are kind of hard. So I have like some themes, like some are very deep dives. I'm inspired. And one thing I don't want to, um, are you, I don't want to end this interview before talking, asking you guys, like, it's not a field travel traveling is not a field where there's like a lot of, I would say, seminal figure, like inspirational figures, because, you know, it's, it, they're not, it's not like, uh, it's not like sports, you know, they're not in your face all the time. There's, it's such a subtle area of, of, of content production. Do you guys have any like proper inspirations that you draw on when you're planning a trip or planning an article? That's a good question. I feel like there have been some in the past, but maybe not now. I mean, like Anthony Bourdain's work has always been a big inspiration for us and something that we've... Like if we're going to a location and he has an episode on it, we'll we'll try to watch that and kind of get excited about where we're going and stuff like that. Can you think of any others? Yeah, Ralph Potts's book Vagabonding, I think, was a big uh, Vagabond. Yeah, I've heard about that. Um, even some of the like four-hour workweek stuff, just around like the idea of like building a life, traveling. So um, Tim Ferriss in there. I'm trying to think what else. Oh, actually, one really huge one for us early on, more so as travelers and content creators, was the show Departures, um, which is pretty popular. You can find I think a couple seasons on Netflix, but it was a Canadian show, and it's like two Canadian guys kind of pre-YouTube stage. So they were, but they were doing like travel vlogging before travel vlogging was a thing. And so they were out like really kind of low budget, but making a TV show about their travels. So I think that was a really big inspiration for us as well. Yeah, that was another one like alongside the Bourdain stuff that when we were going to a location, especially early on in our travels, we'd see if there was a departures episode on it too and get some inspiration from that. But I feel like now it's like things are so different, right? So if we're going somewhere, we'll kind of do a Google search and then check out a YouTube videos, check out a couple blog posts. If we have friends who have been somewhere, that's usually like the first place we turn. Like if I know, like if I was coming to Italy, for example, like I would reach out to you and say like, Hey, you know, can you give me some like pointers on our itinerary? Anything we should add? Like, if you've been to any of these places, what do you recommend, et cetera, et cetera? And I feel like that word of mouth for me is is very powerful in terms of getting recommendations. I feel like I was thinking while you were talking and listening. I'm not that much of a jerk. Um, I was thinking like I think the reason why it's difficult to become famous as a 
travel as a traveler is because the destination is always going to be more famous than you are. Whereas if you are, let's say you're Cristiano Ronaldo, you are the team that you, you know, like, it's not that Real Madrid is more famous than Cristiano Ronaldo when he played for Real Madrid. It's like he is Real Madrid. Um, the players on the sport on a sports team are that team at that moment. But I think like the trouble about writing about a place like, so I'm going to give you an example. It's one of my biggest inspirations is Paul Bowles. He was an American expat who lived for 40 years in Morocco from like 1910 to 1945 and traveled around some other parts of the world. And he wrote this amazing book uh, about just all of his travel memoirs and just with the most insane stories. And he has everything I love about, you know, a writer is he's able to pick out in any, in any individual moment, the, 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 the detail that, that, brings the most care, the detail that's like the most benign, but yet brings the most character out of the scene. And, uh, but he, he was, he lived in Morocco and Morocco will always be more famous than Paul Bowles. So it's difficult to like latch onto that. But I think another one is, uh, Colin Thubron, I think is how you pronounce his name. He's an English guy who does this, does out of this, out of his mind, like complicated traveling. Just, you know, overland from China to Turkey or uh, overland, you know, in, in two concentric circles around all of the former Soviet Central Asian republics. Like just just crazy. He also got caught in a, in a SARS-CoV-1 epidemic when he was in China. So he, <laughs> I know what that felt like having read his book. Um, but that kind of like being able to travel and just it's so difficult to explain i find this so hard is like you're telling a story but it's not about it's not about a place you see saw or something you ate or someone you met it's when all of those details dance around each other in a way that that, that none of them stay in focus long enough for you to to focus on them, but they're all dancing and kind of like, like kind of the way, like an organized dance troupe moves. You don't really focus on an individual face or an individual movement. You're, you're taking all of it in as a whole. And so when I go to a place or when I pick, when I plan out an article to write, I want to try to engage the reader in in as many senses as possible i try to connect with the five senses i try to connect with like all the major cultural elements that people like about travel i try you know but i try to touch on always the past political history and the current political situation and i try to move fast enough through all of those different elements to to never hold the reader's attention on any one of them for any two for for too long, and I would say if I had to describe how I plan travel articles, the ones that I really love because there's also you know uh, one day in Naples or a guide to the Naples Islands or you know what have you guides like for example everything you need to know to rent a car in namibia because i learned a lot of things that were horrible that i wish i knew before 
But the articles that I really love, the kind of thing I would love to do for the rest of my life and how I imagine writing my book is, like I said, moving between those elements in a way that, that, that they leave and they're not, the reader isn't even sure what they've learned or if they've learned anything really. But I just like, because that's, but because when you travel through a country, that's kind of what it feels like. It's, you think about individual moments, but pieced together, unless you really sit and dissect them, it does kind of come, it kind of comes at you in this wave, this experiential wave of memory that's difficult to break apart. Certainly that's how Morocco felt like me. That's how, when I was in Ukraine, that's how it felt like to me when I was in Ukraine. That's how it felt like when I was in Nicaragua. So I'm always trying to bring that, that, that full force element to all my, my stories. Yeah, that's really cool to hear. And I, I really love that you take kind of a different pro- approach to a lot of, you know, other writers just in terms of how you're deciding what to write about and how you're approaching that. And, you know, it's not like travel blogging, but more of travel journalism and then all the other topics you include as well. So I just think it's really cool that you've been able to kind of find, you know, your own unique spin on this and create your own business and whatnot. Um, I just have one final question for you. I'm curious if somebody was planning a trip to Italy, obviously there's like, you know, a lot of popular places to go that I think a lot of us know about, but where's you know, one place or maybe a couple of places that you've discovered that are really not on the beaten path that you think like we should really go visit there or somebody should go visit there. Okay. So first I want to put a disclaimer here, which is I run a very small, uh, travel, cons- a very cheap travel consulting agency called uh, custom Italian tours.com. <clears throat> and <laughs> moving on. Um, so one of the so you know it's an extremely regional place and the people who live here have often done so without moving for many hundreds of years and um, it really depends on what you want to see because like there are certain things like there's nowhere else in the you know there may be two or three places in the world that are anything like venice right so it, the problem with the, the the spot, the nice spots in Italy, I think the problem is they're so nice that it's like, or they're so, you, you know, uniquely amazing that it's just like, you're not going to find it anywhere in the world. So I'm going to give you the classic off the beaten path destinations that I recommend. So, and I'm going to link them into another item that is very, very common to do or see. So Napoli, um, Naples is an incredibly beautiful and famous place. And there's a lot of things to do and see Pompeii, uh, the Amalfi Coast, the islands. But I'm going to tell you about a city called Puzzuoli. And Puzzuoli is about a 15-minute ride on the metro from Naples. And Puzzuoli is essentially a, a suburb of Naples, and it's much quieter you get a much uh, easier sea breeze that smells nothing of garbage. And it is the perfect place to stay to visit Naples because it has all of the things that are great about Naples. You have all access to all the great things about Naples, except you don't have to be in Naples, which means you don't have to be robbed and you don't have to, 
deal with the smell of garbage and you don't have the noise. It is just this beautifully quiet, incredibly friendly. I mean, it's that one of those kind of those few places in Italy where you and your wife you put on, if you put a little effort into your outfit and you go walking down the street, everyone's, you know, everyone's like, buonasera ragazzi. You know, that it has that sort of really easy. Um, there's this wonderful ferry company that, that will take you to the, all the Napoli islands, but they do it in like a speedboat. So you really get to actually be rather than those smoke belching, huge car ferries that everybody else takes from Napoli Porto. Um, so that's really fun. And the best part about Pasquale, if you're me, it is one of the four places in Italy with the other being Verona, Capua and Roma where you can find a preserved Roman amphitheater, except this one, nobody knows about. So it's totally empty almost all the time. You get to walk around. Imagine being in the Colosseum with no one else in. It's a really amazing. And Pozzuoli has the, like the best pizza I've ever had. But I think that's, that's I don't want to get into that right now because it's a big question. You know, that's a big topic. And I'm by no means an expert of pizza in Italy, but it had a, it had a, as near as we as we say in, in English, as near as makes no difference. It's the finest pizza that you'd find in the area. So that's the first place I would see if you're going to visit Naples. The second is if you're coming to my area to Milan, there's a place called Garda, and Garda is a lake, a very big, beautiful lake. And there's a very famous lake in this area called Lake Como. It's where George Clooney lives. But Como is surrounded by very busy areas of traffic, incredibly uh, packed towns. And it's kind of like the classic Instagram lake. So a lot of people will go there on on a date with their honey just to kind of like take Instagram photos and have a glass of wine. In Vice, instead, sorry, Garda is a lake further to the east, about an hour and a half east of Milan, maybe more. It's, it's difficult because we have to drive like 50 minutes to arrive in Milan and then like another hot hours. So it's some hours east of Milan. And uh, it is this beautiful lake. And if you can, rent a car because the roads are so dramatic and you drive through some very interesting towns. There's a town called Limone where the... It was the voted the second most beautiful small town in Italy recently. It is the northernmost place in the world for regular lemon cultivation. And there's another town called Salo, which was really cool. Salo had its own like Hitler youth camp. So if you're interested in historical sites from World War II, that was like a was like a Mussolini uh Hitler kind of allegiance center was centered in Salo there on Lago di Garda. But it's it's not what I love about Garda Lake is you don't really have to pick this Ansano is another beautiful town, but you don't really have to you just get in your car, you drive start to drive along Lago di Garda, and you stop when you when you're in that, when you have that moment when you're like, okay, stop, 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 stop. When you see whoever's driving, stop, 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 stop. It's so beautiful. So those are two very exceptional uh, locations. And then the third place, I will give you a very uh, special um, recommendation, which is that if you are in Tuscany and if you go to the 
sea, there is an area called Maremma. Maremma is a national park, but near Maremma, there are a lot of places where you can um, go horseback riding. And there's one place, it's a what's it's it's a wonderful kind of place that in in, Ita- in Italian is called agriturismo, which doesn't have a single word translation in English. It sort of means the best as I can translate it, kind of like luxury farm stay. And it's a place where you can connect with nature and eat rustic food. And it's usually cheaper than normal hotels. But it's kind of out in nature is the idea. But it's usually like a proper hotel. There's a, a And the best places we've stayed at have always been agriturismo. But this one in particular is called Burrata, La Burrata. And it's in the national park. So what I would say is if you're going to Tuscany and you're planning to go on the ocean, plan a trip to Maremma because it's very, very beautiful. Maremma is a forest right on the edge of the sea of pine trees. But it's not like, you know, don't think of like evergreen Christmas trees. There are these tropical, you know, kind of like warm weather pine trees that grow very, very tall with no branches and then have this giant cauliflower head. And uh, it's very beautiful there. And if you stay at Burrata, it's, it's, you can't believe how inexpensive it is to eat like a real king. And they make very typical after dinner in Italy to have a, a liquore or an amaro. Depends on, or liquorizia, it depends on what you like, but it's sort of like an after dinner liqueur. And the ones they, they make, uh, it's award winning in, in, in Burrata. They make this unbelievable amaro, which is the Italian word. It means bitter. So it, it's literally like an after dinner liqueur. It's, it's heavier than wine, lighter than vodka sort of thing, but it is amazing. It's fermented with herbs they grow there. And it just, uh, it's a wonderful way to like see Tuscany. Uh, that's it's totally different because a lot of people visit Tuscany in the summer and it's so hot and you're you're standing in cities with a million people and there's all this noise. So it's nice to get out into nature. And that that uh, that place, uh, La Burrata in uh, Maremma National Park is beautiful because you're in the middle of of quite nothing and nowhere. Well, not nothing, no, but the, you can't hear anybody but the other guests. And so you can hear birds and the horses and stuff. And you can eat so well. They have like fresh boar, risotto, and um, it's wonderful afternoon, of course. So those are the three three places that I will give your listeners as a teaser for more in-depth consultation services available at customitaliantours.com. Amazing. Yeah. Thanks for plugging that. And also thanks for sharing that. I was uh, following along with you on a map. I think I did pretty well. I was like, how do you spell these words? But I think I found them all. (laughs) So thank you for that. That makes me want to return to Italy. It's been a long time since we've been there. And I think we're, we're due back to visit. So hopefully we'll get to maybe hang out with you in person sometime in the future when the world is maybe a less weird. <laughs> You've already met my sister, which is like weird because you <laughs> it was me. Who, you know, I was the one who discovered the radio show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Amazing. Andy, it's been so good connecting with you today. Can you share with listeners where they can go to find you? Okay, so don't go to my Instagram because as much as I like to try to keep it official while I'm traveling, there's always rubbish about football and, and, and my cats and things like that. So don't bother with that. So you can find me at uh, www.worldatlarge.news. 
I wasn't going to spend $1,000 for .com, but .news makes sense because I'm a new site. And then uh, there's all my journalism there, but there's also my uh, my travel blog, which I only, I, I keep quite, I, I honor myself and I only publish on the travel blog while I'm traveling. And that's called Dispatches from the Field. And you can find it on the, on the search section. And then if you're interested in my other work at uh, Good News Network, I publish two to three uh, stories every day, only positive news, which is uh, what the whole website's about. Cool. Yeah, I'm super, super into that. So I'm going to have to check that out. So thank cool. you. Thanks so much awesome. for having me, guys. It's been a, a long-held ambition now fulfilled. Yeah, no, we're really excited that, you know, we've been able to have you on and have this conversation. So thanks for your time today. Thanks, Andy. Pleasure. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want more, make sure to check out The World Wanders Insider, available on Patreon at patreon.com slash theworldwanders. For show notes, head over to theworldwanders.com. Find us on social media at The World Wanders Podcast and join the private Facebook community at World Wanders, a community for travelers. You can always get in touch with us at info at theworldwanders.com. And if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. It really helps us find new listeners. See you next time.